Welcome to the Catch 22 Minutes podcast, where we discuss some of the UK's major social challenges. We speak to frontline experts, industry leaders, and people with lived experience, all in pursuit of ideas for reforming public services. My name is Josie Cochran, Comms Manager at Catch 22, and in this season, alongside our guests, we'll be focused on solutions. Solutions which could impact every aspect of the justice sector, from how we support victims to the way individuals are supported in our prisons and in the community. This series of Catch-22 Minutes has focused on the justice sector. Over the 10 episodes, we've been talking to experts, policymakers and frontline staff on how we can do things better. For many of the statutory services we know today, they started off as ideas and then became services delivered by voluntary and private organisations. Indeed, by organisations such as Catch-22. Catch-22 traces its roots back to the late 18th century and lays claim to the initiation of a range of public services, from education to probation. Today I'm joined by Catch-22 CEO Chris Wright. From his early days as a social worker to leading Catch-22 through the immense changes for nearly two decades, he's been a huge advocate for the power of social enterprises and the importance of public sector innovation. We'll be talking about the delivery of public services today, the changes he's seen over the years and the future of public sector procurement. Hi, Chris. Hi, Josie. Good to see you. So to start off with, can you briefly explain the different layers we have in public service delivery and why there is such a combination, particularly in the justice sector? It's, it's interesting. I mean, the um, across the public service landscape, there are a range of providers from the private sector, the voluntary sector, but principally the default provider is the state. It's been like that, I guess, for the last 80 odd years, although over the last 20 or 30 years, there's been an increased move towards outsourcing of some public services, such as uh, justice, health, employability type services. And, and across some um, children's social care as well. It's been a long journey from pre-beverage when much of what was delivered was in a, a less than integrated way by a range of different private institutions, the church, voluntary organisations, indeed organisations such as ours. And then once the introduction of a welfare state, it became a more integrated common set of arrangements across the country with a lot of statutory provision being run by public sector organisations, local authority, governments and so forth. Why did the outsourcing start in the first place? Well, I think, again, we just need to kind of, I think this is a moment in time, really, that we had 80 years of a particular approach. During the 80s and 90s, I guess there was a, a move towards thinking differently about how large-scale transformation could take place and it was felt that that could be delivered through inviting largely private sector organisations in, organisations with, in many cases, PLCs with large balance sheets, access to capital, who could bid for services which historically had been, as I said, over the last 80 years, been primarily delivered by the state. And, And I guess it was a uh, a desire to bring about transformation, efficiency, improved effectiveness, and it, you know the prevailing 
view is that maybe that could be done by the private sector. You know, it's not like as though um, no other organisations and state organisations have been involved in delivering public services, but many of those types of services being provided by civil society or the third sector were probably additional, adding value to not delivering the core um, service of themselves. And I guess it's that that's the issue I'm really interested in, is the shift between the state as the producer to the state as the enabler. And maybe the beginning of that movement happened with the introduction of outsourcing of public services in the 80s and 90s. What do you think the role of the state is there? The role of a state is, I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a very big question, but fundamentally the role of a state is to create the conditions in which people can live peaceful lives and fulfil their potential and contribute to society and community and, and the economy. And how the state organises itself to facilitate that is, I think, the question in hand. And this is not an argument about a small state necessarily. It's about a different kind of state, a state which is still using taxpayers' money, distributing those resources as effectively as it can in order to deliver the best kind of conditions for people to fulfil their potential. And, and my view is that a lot of public services today have become incredibly complex, very kind of bureaucratic, transactional, compliance-led, and a lot of services which are driven by the centre and there's been a, an increasing, certainly injustice, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen an increased concentration of responsibility and authority at the centre. Whereas when I first became a probation officer, probation areas existed as coterminous with counties uh, run by probation committees, much more devolved, much more local, much more connected to the communities in which they serve. And we've seen that change significantly over the last 20 years or so. Can you just kind of briefly, why is that? It's, it's difficult to be absolutely precise, but um, ultimately, I mean, I, I think some of this does date back to the, the kind of introduction of new public management as a, as a framing philosophy, um, where it was felt that the centre could be much more in command and control of what goes on at the local level. So, you know, setting high level key performance indicators and targeting performance at the local level. And although I have some sympathy with the desire to create some, you know, rigor and focus and attention on those key performance indicators, I think the flip side has been an increasing disconnect between what goes on in a local community and bureaucrats in Whitehall trying to pull levers to affect change. And I just don't think the world works like that. I think it's far too, the world is today and, and, and contemporary Britain is much too complex for the ability to pull a lever in Whitehall to make a difference in, you know, in Acacia Avenue or, or, or wherever. So why do you think social enterprises will be any different or are any different to existing procurement of services? I'm interested in the concept of social business. And what I'm really interested in is how you can marry the commercial and business acumen of you know, running an organisation with delivering social impact. 
where I think social enterprises have a role to play is because they can be more local, they can be more intimate, they can be more responsive. They can, uh, if the conditions allow them to be, a, you know, create solutions with local people to local problems. And it's that kind of agility and responsiveness allied to a need to be business focused and commercially minded, which in my view would allow um, public money to be well spent, recycled by, by managing that public money well so um, that any margins made by those organizations are redistributed back into public service delivery and not extracted for shareholder benefit. But what about when we talk about social enterprises delivering at scale? So it's all well and good to talk about that with a local community, but what about when you want to take that idea and deliver it nationally? I I think that's a really good question. And what we mustn't do is end up mirroring the exact arrangements we're trying to challenge. So, of course, scale is important because the more scale you've got, the more economies you can potentially make. I think one of the problems around private sector outsourcing is a lot of their delivery models just replicate public service systems. And so they just build in the same kind of compliance focus and transactional relationships that we're we're arguing against. So I think there's a a very good argument to say that you have to be really careful around scale. And um, it might be community, maybe a more local authority level, regional level, but if you lose the connection between the people who are the beneficiaries of the services, the people who live in the communities in which you're living those services, and the organisations running those services, then you're back in exactly the same issues we're trying to confront. Have you seen any ways that that's been addressed really well? It's difficult to answer that question. I think there's some really interesting models of spin-outs, particularly in the NHS. There's some large-scale NHS spin-out organisations. I say large-scale, it's all relative, operating at regional county level. And we're seeing some interesting you know, relationships between those organisations and people they're providing. But because we don't have an overarching policy framework, which lends itself to reconfiguring, um, rethinking how public services can be organised. I think what you get is a very piecemeal, disparate set of arrangements with with a lot of organisations like Catch-22 simply winning contracts which are, as I said at at the top of this conversation, that are providing additionality in the main as opposed to the opportunity to be commissioned to run core public service provision. What's your view on the recent Green Paper regarding future procurement? I think it's hugely disappointing. And in fact, the bill which is currently going through, I think it's in the Lords at the moment, in our view, and the view of many people in in the sector that we operate within, feel that that it's missed an opportunity to create the conditions which would allow organisations such as ours and others like us to play a greater role. So it's, it's, it's eschewed the idea of social innovation partnerships, which were a great innovation brought through um, European procurement. And as a consequence, the opportunity to procure organizations like us as innovation partners to help shape and design what public services could look like has been lost. There's a lot more 
people with greater technical knowledge than I who could answer that question in, in more detail. But I think the principal issue for us is it it's a bill which seems to be focused on the procurement of commodities as opposed to the procurement of services. So you're shortly leaving Catch-22 as our CEO, unfortunately. But uh, have your views of how public services are procured changed over the years you've been with Catch or even since you were a social worker? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the argument I'm making today is a very different argument from the one I might have been making 35 years ago. And and that's largely because you get exposed to different experiences. And uh, if all that you know is you know, one way of doing things and you know going back to that argument where the state was the default producer you you know you assume that that's the way of doing things and it's only when you get exposed to different ideas you see different capabilities you see different outcomes arise as a consequence of those different capabilities that you start to think differently about how organizations how services could be structured and of course i'm partial you know i i've spent the last you know 16 years of my life trying to ensure that catch 22 is relevant is in a position to make a contribution improve the, the quality of the lives of the people we support but i that partiality has led me to see what an agile commercial consumer focused business can achieve and look i'm not advocating for some world in which the state isn't delivering any services at all. I'm just arguing for a world in which the state recognises it can act as an enabler as well as a producer. That um, that if it reaches out into the wider communities in which it has responsibility, it will find capacity. And if you can unlock that capacity, you've got an opportunity to really think differently and engage with the services. And, and, and look, we're heading into a very different set of arrangements, a different world where the historic way of delivering services is going to be fundamentally challenged by the arrival of digital solution. You know, we're, we're in, a lot of young people are genuinely the digital natives, and therefore you need to have much more contemporary, modern approaches to engage people. And I'm not seeing public systems moving at the pace needed to meet the needs of the people we're here to support. And that's because of a bureau, what I'm calling the bureaucratic mindset, get a sclerosis, which is inbuilt into that system, which is not able to respond at the pace necessary. And that's where more agile, responsive, democratically accountable organisations, which relate to the communities in which they serve, have a better opportunity to do something about it, in my view. Is there anything else there that you think kind of is the barrier that maybe state sees to adopting these models? Wherever you look at this from a sort of polarisation of politics, I guess on the left, the, the, the traditional argument against this would be that the state is there to provide these services. And therefore, why, why would you want to in any way introduce competition? Because I still believe fundamentally that competition is important in this. And again, part of the left would argue that you're losing this democratic accountability for the the way services are organised. And on the right, I I guess the argument would be, well, you're just kind of replicating a model of the state whereby, you know, you raise in taxation and and not really 
and reducing the role of the state. And what I'm trying to say is, look, the fundamental role of the state, as I said at the top, is to create the conditions in which people can live their lives effectively. I think the competition is really important if you frame it as such that you know you're 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 controlling the extraction of value from any contracts. Um, but competition drives does generally, in my experience, drives innovation, more imaginative thinking. As long as the rules of that competition are not designed to um, reduce everything to the lowest common denominator and zero sums. I think what's required is a new way of thinking, which recognises the capability of the the sector that we work in to do much more. And, you know, during the pandemic, we saw, and I don't want to over-romanticise this, but we did see the unlocking of huge capability in communities. People want to look out for each other. And there's a way of organising ourselves which takes advantage of that. And the current, the current models don't provide the, the framework for that to happen effectively, in my view. So we need a rethinking of how we organise ourselves. One of the things I found most frustrating, I guess, is that it's become an increasingly unforgiving environment where there's no room for failure, no room for you know, getting things wrong. And, and although there could be serious consequences of getting things wrong for people who are in the receipt of public services. That kind of overarching perspective results in a very risk-averse, inward-looking, compliance-led culture, which actually you know, stymies innovation, imagination, and the ability to meet the needs of those we're serving. And as a consequence, there's been a breakdown of trust. We need to reset around trust and reciprocity and if we got into that way of thinking, uh, that way of framing things, I think we'd be able to achieve a great deal more. And just last question for me. If you were developing a social enterprise today, what issues would you focus on? Access to capital. It's very difficult to scale, even though I, I've talked about the, the limitations of scale, but also there is an important issue there about having a sufficient capacity to be able to operate effectively. So you need access to capital. And if you've got access to capital, then you can ensure you've got the infrastructure support you need in order to affect the changes that are articulated. Catch-22 has obviously been a platform to be able to do that for other social enterprises. Just with you finishing up soon, is there any you're particularly proud of looking back on how Catch-22 supported other social enterprises? Yeah, I... Um... The last few years, we've spent quite a bit of time trying to be an incubator for others. And so I'm really proud of the work that Natasha Porter has done with Unlock Graduates, which spun out from Catch-22. I'm really proud of the Lighthouse and Emmanuel and the work him and his team have been doing in kind of rethinking what a social pedagogical approach to children's residential care looks like. We contributed to creation of capacity, which is thinking differently about public services across the Liverpool city region. And they too are currently working on residential children's care. So there's a range of organisations we've helped to build and that makes me feel very proud. There are things we've got wrong as well, you know, organisations we try to set up which haven't quite worked. So back in my early days of being involved in uh, the forerunner to Catch-22, Rainer, we set up 
a social enterprise motor repair business and that sadly failed and one of the lessons I learned from that was it didn't fail fast enough but, you know, we let it fail very slowly and you know so I, I learned some lessons along the way so there have been some things which haven't worked but in order to somebody was talking to me the other day about you know venture capital and how you know it gets behind 10 you know opportunities in which only one will work now i'm not really arguing that that's necessarily how you should use capital in in our world but there's some lessons there about you do capitalize things some of them might not work but the ones that do will generate the kind of returns i.e social returns which suggests it's worthy of the investment thank you so much for listening to this last episode of this series of catch 22 minutes and thank you to chris wright for joining us as he finishes his role handing over the reins and leading catch 22 naomi holston has recently started her role as catch 22 ceo and i'm sure you'll hear from her in a future episode This episode is also the last from me, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to All Things Justice. Effective procurement and service design has been a theme throughout this series. We've talked about how we open doors for social enterprises who are just starting up, to the challenges when ideas are to the challenges when ideas are adapted nationally. We've talked about how we adapt to changing environments, be it a global pandemic or the impact of digitalisation, to how we listen to service users and incorporate their needs into prisons, victim services and other community services. Do keep an eye out for the next series of Catch 22 Minutes. You can follow Catch 22 on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram.